Excited to continue on in our series in the Gospel of John, uh, get a front row seat to the life teaching ministry of Jesus, and then uh, we're getting there to his arrest, his eventual execution, and then his resurrection. Spoiler alert. Um, so, super excited about it. Um, hey, a couple of people have asked me, we do have our churchwide retreat slash summit next weekend, but that doesn't mean that we won't have service because we know not everybody is able to come and some people will be here and there'll be new people looking for uh, the gospel and looking for community. And so uh, we will, a couple of us will come back and we'll have service. And, and so uh, definitely be here next week if you're not able to come to the summit retreat. We had to put in our final numbers last week, um, but if for some reason this is the first time you've listened to announcements or <laughs> checked your email and you just you really want to come up we do have uh, had a couple slots open up because some people had to that had signed up had to back out so come talk to me or Tylene or Ryan or uh, anybody that looks like they know well I don't look like I know what I'm doing but other people that look like they know what they're doing and and you could email us and we'd uh, we can squeeze you in so uh, that'll be a super fun time but we'll, we will be um, for those people not at the retreat, we'll be here worshiping next Sunday as well, and actually doing part two of uh, this text that we'll look at today, because it's a long text, and so we're not going to try, I mean, it's long enough, just half of, half of it, but we're going to split it into two, even though it's one big dialogue that Jesus is having uh, with some friends, kind of. So, you ready? Let me pray, and then we'll get right into the text. Father God, thank you for this chance to get together, to meet together, to study together, to consider together, to worship together, to praise your name together, God, and to remember that we are not alone in this world because you are with us and you have surrounded us by your saints, your people. And so uh, just remind us of that today. Fill us with light, God, as we talk about Jesus as the light of the world. And so uh, we do all things for his glory uh, and for his name uh, because it's for our good as well. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So are you ready to rock and roll? We're gonna go fast today. Maybe. We're gonna go, we're gonna go. We're gonna we're gonna try to do some things. All we have to do is describe what it means that Jesus is the light of the world. That's all we have to do. Small task. But we'll get at it. Now, uh, as way of background, before I read the text, I've got to tell you something quite important about uh, the overall message of John. So John's biography is trying to do some specific things. We've talked about that, right? Like he's the last of the gospel writers. He's writing, you know, probably a couple decades after uh, the last of the other three gospels or biographies of Jesus have been written. And so he's trying to illuminate some new things or maybe things that had been forgotten over those decades. And so he's trying to do some things. And one of the ways you can tell what an author's trying to do is to see their overall structure or flow. And so right here we have a big pivot or turn in the, in the overall structure of his gospel. So we've just come out of two chapters, chapters 5 to 7, which is really the, the culmination of Jesus' confession as the Son of God, which is his revelation that he is the Son of God. And so uh, in those chapters, uh, you don't have a lot, even though we've talked about the debate that's happening, it's been um, less, uh, what's the word, sort of competitive in a way. Um, there's not a lot of pushback, and Jesus isn't uh, particularly concerned with sort of uh, making the claim himself. He just allows people to sort of talk about him, 
but he's revealing through his miracles and through what he says that he is the Son of God. And now, right here in this moment, we see a real turn in the narrative arc because now the Pharisees who had been, they're sort of the most religious, they know the scriptures the best, um, and in some sense they have the most to lose if Jesus comes on the scene and sort of uh, usurps their power, they now actually will confront Jesus head on and Jesus will confront them head on. So what was sort of the confession of the Son of God now turns and flips here to um, what I'm calling the controversy over the Son of God, right? So now it becomes very combative. And obviously, you know, if you know how the story goes, the combative argumentation will eventually learn, lead into Jesus' arrest, execution, which is sort of what the Pharisees think is the end of the controversy. We know now we're talking about it 2,000 years later. The controversy is not over. But this is really, really where it starts. So before here, the Pharisees would always send people, kind of like spies, to spy on Jesus and report back to them. Do you remember that? As we've been going, they sent some people out to see what John the Baptist and Jesus are doing with the baptisms, and then they come back and they report. Then they sent out Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus? They sent him out to like spy, and Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and has a great conversation with him and kind of comes back saying, I don't know, this guy does seem kind of different. Um, But now the Pharisees are going to talk to Jesus directly. Now, interestingly, and I just want to point this out, remember that uh, Nicodemus actually plays a part in this as well, because um, what Ryan talked about last week, this amazing story of uh, Jesus' love and and mercy um, uh, towards the woman caught in adultery, and, and Jesus says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. That's what Ryan talked about last week. But he also shared how that probably wasn't written by John and was inserted into John's biography at a later time. You can go back and listen to that, and, and, and it's a great explanation, and it helps us understand why they, some scholar along the line put this story that really most likely actually happened, but inserted it into John's gospel. Um, if, if, that, if that is truly not original to John, the last thing that we have happening before the Pharisees confront Jesus, and Jesus confronts the Pharisees, is what? Turn with me back to chapter 7, and we'll look at it, starting in verse 45. So chapter 7, verse 45, this would actually be, if you take out the story Ryan uh, talked about last week, take that out, this is the last thing that happens, so give us the context. Remember, he's at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is one of the big three festivals that all the Jews would come back to Jerusalem for, and it was celebrating and awaiting the coming of God once again, so it's anticipating that God would come in, in, a, in a fresh and new way. This is what was happening. Jesus was speaking in the, in the, in the, in the tabernacle, or sorry, in the temple, and, and the Pharisees had sent servants to go arrest him. Again, they weren't confronting him directly. They're always sending other people. The servants came back, but without Jesus, and this is where we are in verse 45. So it says, Then the servants came to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them. So the Pharisees are asking the servants they had sent, Why didn't you bring him? Why didn't you bring Jesus back with you? Why didn't you arrest him? The servants answered, Well, no man that we've ever met, that we've ever experienced, spoke like this. So they're starting to consider. Maybe he is who he says he is. Then the Pharisees responded to them, Are you fooled too? 
Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed, the Pharisees say. Anybody that believes him is accursed. Then Nicodemus steps up. Remember Nicodemus is the one that they had sent back in chapter 3. Nicodemus, hey guys, the one who came to him previously, who was one of them, Nicodemus said to them, Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? So Nicodemus kind of stands up, Hey guys, we're, we're already being judge and jury of Jesus, and we haven't even put him on trial yet. We better hear directly from him. You've only sent people to sort of investigate, but you've never heard him, and we don't do that, right? Doesn't our law say that? You know, I think Nicodemus, we talked about that when I preached on, on Nicodemus back in the day, uh, probably was a believer or became a believer. That's why he's called out by name, right? We know him by name, God, because God knows him by name. So Nicodemus says, hey, we don't do this with anybody else. Why are we doing with this Jesus? And then the Pharisees respond to Nicodemus, verse 52, and say, you aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied, investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee, they say. So they're making fun of where Jesus is from and saying there's no way the Messiah is coming from there. Uh, but then something happens. So turn now to chapter 8, verse 12. And it says, Jesus spoke to them again and said, I am the light of the world. So it seems like what happens, as, as we'll keep reading, and I'll read the whole thing in a second here, he's addressing now the Pharisees directly. So they did listen to Nicodemus, and they did confront him for the first time, and they did say, tell us who you are. And he says, I am the light of the world. Right to their face this time. No more talking about Jesus or hearing rumors, but directly I am the light of the world. And now, as I was trying, I'm trying to explain this turn. I hope, I hope you're jiving with me. This turn from Jesus is revealing himself, and this is what people are saying about him, and this is the Pharisees are investigating by set, sending people to check it out, and now it turns to this Jesus very directly. I am the light of the world. Right, right to his opponents, right to his enemies. And it made me think of uh, sort of a famous speech in film history. Many Academy Awards for this film. Uh, it, it is one of my favorite films. Don't judge me. Uh, I haven't been able to convince my wife to watch it with me, but I do have Scottish ancestry in me, and so I'm a big fan of the movie Braveheart, okay? Uh, so much so that my grandmother, Grandma Arliss, uh, actually made me a kilt for my uh, senior year Halloween party. I mean, I was, I was into it, okay? I had the blue face paint, whatever. So, so I'm a true fan, not just, you know, whatever. Okay, so don't, however you feel about this movie, you know. Many Academy Awards, so the critics even liked it. You know, okay, so. One of the greatest speeches ever in cinematic history is where William Wallace comes before the big fight against the English, and, you know, they're the underdogs, and... The people are scared, the, the English army is big, and, you know, it's like the Pharisees, okay. They got all the power, and the people are rustling, and you hear them talking uh, about uh, this, and all the clans have gathered together, and then the people start to say, there are too many, 
We can't battle them. We can't fight them. Uh, what are we going to do? And somebody sort of calls out, you know, you know, well, William Wallace will help us, right? And uh, they start to talk about William Wallace, and they're kind of talking about him almost as if he's a legend, like a legend in the sense of maybe he's not even real, or what is he like? And, you know, they're talking about this stuff, and he's not going to show up, and then uh, some of them start to walk away, and they say, well, we're not going to give our lives for this, and they start to walk away, and then all of a sudden, William Wallace, you know, rides in on his horse, walks in slowly, and everyone goes, is that him? Like, they've never seen him. Like, they've only heard stories about him. Is that him? And so he says, uh, almost in a revelatory way, he says, you know, I am William Wallace. And somebody shouts out from the crowd and says, you're not, you know, basically, you're not William Wallace. He's like, William Wallace is seven feet tall. William Wallace says, I have heard. <laughs> I have heard. And he shoots fireballs from his eyes and, or something like that. And lightning, or no, maybe it's the other way. And light, <laughs> lightning from his eyes and fireballs from his arse. <laughs> right? And so, what's going on here? People had heard the legend. They'd heard what was happening. They'd heard about some of his other antics and victories. But it almost was a legendary status about what this William Wallace would be like. And how many men he'd killed on his own. And, right? And then they see him. It's actually him. But they, they, they can't. It's hard to believe because the legend versus the real thing. And, so he starts that speech with, I am William Wallace. And they say, no, you're not. And then, and then the tone changes, if you listen to the speech. So the tone changes. He says, I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. Will you fight? And they say, no, we'll run and we'll live. And he says, I fight and you may die. Run, you'll live, at least a while, and dying in your bed many years from now. Would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell your enemies that they may take your lives, but they'll never take your freedom? And they, of course, erupt in great, uh, and they win the battle, right? So... Spoiler alert, <laughs> if you haven't seen it. Um, but, you know, it doesn't go so well for William. You'll have to watch to see. But I, th I think that speech is probably uh, based maybe a little bit here on this passage. As, as we read it, you might hear some of the same ideas about freedom and truth. But that switch of, he says once, I am William Wallace... But his tone changes, and he says, I am William Wallace. This is what Jesus is doing here. He has been showing that he is the Savior of his people, the Savior of the world. He's been revealing it. But now the moment comes where that confession becomes Jesus' insistence that he is the Son of God. I am the light of the world. What you have heard is true. And of course, Jesus will give his life to prove it. So, 
the shift in the narrative has happened, and now it's going to get a lot more frisky, and it's going to get a lot more intense. And so let's watch how it progresses. Would you read with me, starting in verse 12? And we're going to read, even though we're not going to talk about all of it, all the way to verse 59, so you can see the full argument that's going on here. For the first time, face to face, the Scottish and the English, (laughs) Jesus and the Pharisees. Here we go. Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself? Your testimony is not valid? Jesus says, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I am going, but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Then they asked him, where is your father? This was a slight You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my father. He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple. But no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Okay, so first exchange there. Then let's keep reading, verse 21. Then he, that's Jesus, said to them again, I am going away. You will look for me and you will... Die in your sin. Whoa. See, Jesus is he's coming at him now. Where I am going, you cannot come, he said. So the Jews said to him, He won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. So basically, they're thinking, What are the places that we can't come? Because we're in control. We have all the power. Oh, suicide was one of those unforgivable sins. So he said, you know, they said, almost jokingly, he's crazy. Maybe he's going to kill himself. Maybe that's what he means by you can't go where I'm going. Jesus responds to their mocking. You are from below, he told them. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins For if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Who are you? They questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the very beginning. Underline very beginning. Johnson, you know, wants to highlight from the very beginning. Because I don't think he's just talking about from the beginning of his ministry, but from the very beginning. That's what Jesus said. Then he said, I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true, and what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. They did not know he was speaking to them about the Father. John inserts that little comment. They were confused. So Jesus said to them, 
When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own, just as, but just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, but I always do what pleases him. That relationship between the Father and the Son, it's beautiful. So, as he, so verse 20, uh, 30 now. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. What kind of belief? So now I'm going into what we'll talk more about next week, okay? But I want to read it for you. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Well, that's funny. Just on the face, they, of course, were enslaved many times. Jesus responded, Truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. The word there is abide forever. Talk about that next week. So if the Son sets you free, you really are free or will be free. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father. So then, you do what you have heard from your father. Our father is Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. <laughs> okay, it's getting hairy. Well, who, well, who? Okay, so they're, they're challenging Jesus' father, and now Jesus is going to tell them who he thinks their father is. You're just doing what your father told you to do. You weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. This is the Pharisees saying this to him. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of any sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. So the Jews responded to him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. When they say that, they're saying, that you're crazy? And now they're calling him a Samaritan, even though they said he was from Galilee. They're just trying to do everything to discredit him. Jesus answers, I do not have a demon, 
On the contrary, I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you are crazy, that you do have a demon. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you claim to be? Jesus replies, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. My Father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he said. Abraham saw it. And he rejoiced. What? The Jews replied, You aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? And this is the kicker. This is why we had to read all of it. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, before Abraham, before Abraham was born, you could insert, I am. So the Jews The Pharisees, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. So they knew what Jesus was saying. (coughs) He was claiming to be God. That's why they picked up stones to throw at him, which again, based on what Ryan talked about last week, if you were here, this is probably why that scribe inserted the story about the woman about to be stoned for adultery because it kind of parallels that Jesus is about to be stoned for his sin of claiming to be God. See how it kind of fits together. And so there's some huge statements that are made in this. I mean, Jesus is calling people sons of the devil. <laughs> They're calling him, saying he has a demon. I mean, it's getting hairy. And man, it's only going to get worse from here. We have now moved into a new, you could say, chapter in the life of Jesus. Okay, so I'm going to try to do three things. I'm going to try to tell you what the light, Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world, all the categories with which this covers. Then I'm going to try to tell you how do you know who's telling the truth in any given situation, particularly relating to what's the true light, this light or that light. And then I'm going to finish with talking about these I am statements that Jesus makes. You ready? Let's go. Okay, so Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Huge statement. Why is it such a huge statement? Because for the Jewish people, the light referred to God. God was the one in charge of light. He always was from the beginning. And and this light was the life of the world. Remember, John gives us his prologue at the beginning. So let's just read that real quick. John 1, 1 to 5. If you remember how John starts his whole biography, um, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. Remember I said, when Jesus says, From the very beginning I've been telling you who I am. All things were created through him, John 1, 3. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him, 
in the, in the hymn, we're talking about John will reveal, is Jesus, uh, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So this is the first three verses in the Torah. This is the most known and well-known, probably Bible verse in all of the world, or, or a religious statement in all the world. And Jesus is saying, they were talking about me. I am the life. Of, I'm the light that brings life. And then John concludes in verse 5, he says, The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. And so, here we have Jesus now saying this about himself, not just John saying it about Jesus. So this is really important. So when Jesus said this, everyone's like, where are you going with this? You are the light of the world. Because the light of the world is God. That's the light that, that brings creative energy into the world. That's what life is related to this light. You have no life without the light. And Jesus says, I'm that light. Genesis 1, that I was just referencing, says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and that God separated the light from the darkness. So that's what every... Every Jewish person that heard Jesus talking would have been like, is that the light you're saying you are? And Jesus is going to confirm that when he says, before Abraham was, I am. Okay? So the light is the creative energy that brings life itself. Jesus is claiming to be that from the beginning. That was me. All things were created through me. Because I am the light that brings life. Okay? So that's number one. Number two the light was always thought of by the people of Israel as God's presence in the world, right? So we have lots of stories of God revealing himself to the people of Israel, and it always centered around light. Okay, so you have, uh, in Exodus 3, you have Moses and the burning bush. God comes to Moses in the form of this peculiar kind of fire and light, but the, the light didn't consume the bush it radiated the bush, and so Moses meets God face to face right there as this peculiar kind of light. Then you keep reading about it. Moses is told by God to go and free his people from slavery in Egypt, and they're taken out into the wilderness, and there's this strange light that's with them. Exodus 14, 19 through 20, I'll just read it. It says, the angel of God who was going in front of them uh, in front of the Israelite forces, moved and then went behind them, and a pillar of cloud uh, moved from in front of them and stood, stood now behind them. It came between the Egyptian army and the Israelite forces. There was cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night, and neither group came near the other all night long. And I like this too. It shows again, it's this like weird description of light, right? It's peculiar. It's like cloud and darkness and it lit up the light, or the, lit up the night. How does cloud and darkness light up the night? It's this peculiar kind of light. And it is the presence of God with the people of Israel all throughout their wilderness wandering. And it protects them here from their enemies. Okay. So then... The people of Israel, through the book of Psalms, which we went through this summer, this is like the song book of the people of God, are taught to sing about God as light, right? So you have examples of this. I'll just read one. Psalm 27.1 teaches the people to sing, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? 
So they're taught to sing about God as light and salvation. And then there's lots of other places. Um, I'll just let you look this one up on your own if you're taking notes. Zechariah 14, 4-9 might be the most apropos because it actually has a combination of light and water. And two weeks ago we talked about how Jesus said, if anybody's thirsty, let them come to me and drink the water of life. So he's connecting light and water, and he's saying, I'm both, and I bring eternal life. And, and Zechariah the prophet predicted that, that God would come again as light and water into the world. And Jesus is saying, I'm fulfilling that prophecy. I am those things. So they always expected that light is the presence of God. So when Jesus claimed, I am the light of the world, he's saying, I am that light you've been waiting for and singing about and anticipating. I am God in your presence. Big statement. Third thing. Jesus is saying that light is our guide. Okay? Light is our guide. So in verse 12, he doesn't just say, I am the light of the world. This is John chapter 8. He says, in the second half, he says, I am the light of the world, and anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So this light isn't just the presence of God or the creative energy, but it's also our guide. That if we follow the light, it will lead us into life. And so we, that was predicted, that the light would lead to life over and over again in the Old Testament. Psalm 119, verse 105 says this, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Then again, Psalm 23, 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I like, I'm going to read that same verse now in the CSB, which even makes it a little bit clear. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Okay? So in the Old Testament, it was predicted that the light would come and guide you through dark places. And Jesus not only says, I am the light, but anyone who follows me, just like it says that anybody that follows the word, <laughs> anyone that follows me will not experience the darkness in the same way. Now, this doesn't mean that there will be no darkness. It just means that when you walk through the darkness, the gift that God has given us in Jesus will always be light to us, even in dark places. So Jesus isn't saying, I'm going to get rid of all of darkness. It's just I'm going to be with you in those dark valleys so you will never fear like you used to fear. Now, some of you say, well, what does that mean for me? Because sometimes I feel like I'm in the darkness and there is no light at all. Does that mean that I don't truly know Jesus? That I don't have God with me? I don't think that's true. You can think of Jesus like a, a flashlight in a sense. Like You could have Jesus still with you, you're just choosing not to turn him on. And that's not because that's not he's not with you anymore. It's just you, for some reason, aren't going to him. Because he says, once I'm with you, I'm always with you. And we'll get into that when we get into the remain of next week. He always remains with you. Even if you don't feel his presence or know his presence, it might be because you are hiding from him even though he's in your pocket. Okay, we'll get into that. Okay, so he's light as a guide. I told you this was going to be a lot. Okay, so now, the fourth thing, light as the final and new judge. This is huge. So if you look, uh, and this also explains probably why that scholar inserted this um, story about the woman caught in adultery where Jesus comes in and he says, you know, I didn't come to condemn, 
you and, and, and you judges who want to judge her and stone her to death for adultery, if you have no sin worthy of death, then you cast the first stone and they all run away. All the judges run away and Jesus is the only judge there. That's probably why, another reason they inserted that beautiful story right there. But Because basically what's happening in this challenge that Jesus is making is he's saying, I'm the new judge in town. And I'm the true judge, the final judge. And so there's this uh, legal term called evocation, uh, which is basically where a higher judge, there's a court case and a higher judge, because he's higher ranked, if he wants, can just take that case and say, that's my case now. Go get a new case. That's what's happening in this story. Jesus is coming in. He's saying, I'm the higher judge, the true judge. Me and the Father are one judge, and I'm taking all these cases from you. You Pharisees have been the judge of the people, condemning them, uh, telling them all the ways that they'd fallen short and gone wrong. And and, and he's saying, I'm coming in. I'm taking all those cases. Those are mine now. I'm the new judge. I am the new light, and I judge in a new way. So you can hear Jesus say that. Look at verses 15 to 16. So chapter 8, verse 15 to 16 says this. Jesus says, you judge by human standards, talking to the Pharisees, I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Okay. Now this can be kind of confusing because he says, uh, you know, do I judge? And then, and then or he says, I don't judge. <laughs> but then he says, but if I did judge... And then later he'll says, I judge you, and you're dead in your sin. <laughs> okay, so like, what is he saying? Well, I think this is, does Jesus judge? He says, yeah, I judge, but not in the way you judge. You judge by appearance. You only see the outside. I judge by the heart. So I judge no one like you judge everyone. So I don't judge like that, by outward appearance alone. Me and the Father, we judge in this new way. So do I judge? No, not like you, but with this new heavenly kind of judgment, the kind of judgment that sees the heart, no matter what the outside is. He judges the heart, where you guys judge by human standards, and you only see the outside. So I'm, I, I don't judge like that, but, but I will judge, and, and you guys are judged, he'll say, and you're dead in your sins. And so then you, so, so he says this uh, again and again, and he'll just distinguish his type of judgment from the world's kind of judgment. And then look, at me, uh, look with me at verse 23 to 26. This is where he tells them they're dead in their sins. So verse 23 says, You are from below, Jesus told them. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So this seems like he's judging, and he is. But he's giving this new kind of judgment which basically says all have fallen short of the glory of God, therefore all have sinned and all will die in their sin if they do not believe and trust in me. That's the gospel. Okay, so Jesus is saying, yes, we are all dead in our sins. Even you Pharisees who keep the law pretty well, we are all dead in our sins unless we believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and God and Savior from what he will then go on to do on the cross and through the resurrection. And so he is judging, but what, what is he condemning? Because he said, I didn't come to condemn, but to save. Remember, we talked about that. We talked about that last week. The answer is judging and condemning are not the same thing. Jesus will judge them and say, you are dead in your sin, but he doesn't condemn them because he says, but I'm offering you myself 
as the gift of grace to take you from that dead place into a place of life. So it's not, he's not condemning them to death. He's just judging, this is the facts. You are dead in your sin, but I have come to give myself as a gift, as a ransom, as a life to pay the penalty for your sins so that you might live again in me. But you must believe. So Jesus' judgment, even if you feel him judge you today, or when you read the scriptures you feel judged, or, or, or you feel guilt, don't see that as God's condemnation. See it as his loving judgment so that you would turn and reconsider who he is so that you might be raised up to life in him. That's the way Jesus' judgment works. It's always pushing you towards reconsideration so that you might find him to be true, to be light, to be life, so that you might have life in him again. That's how Jesus' judgment works, okay? So he doesn't want you to sit in shame and guilt. He wants to take you from it, but he's got to tell you that you're dead in your sin so that you can come to life. This is how the new judge works, and this is how new judgment works. It leads to life, not condemnation, for those who turn and believe in Jesus. Okay? So Jesus is light as the new and final judge. Okay, beautiful. Okay. Okay, one final thing that the light is. The light... This is number five, is the definitive standard. Definitive standard. For what? For which all other so-called lights must be measured. Okay? So this light, as I've said already, is, is peculiar. It's distinct. It's unique. It's not just one in many similar types of life. It's a light. It's a totally different kind of light. And it's now the new definitive standard for light. So again, read with me John 8, verse 21. Jesus says to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Because where I am going, you cannot come. Insert what he says later, unless you believe in me. So the Jews said again to Jesus, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And then Jesus says, you, oh, you you have such small minds. You are from below. He told them, I am from above. You are from this world. I am not of this world. And so he's really setting himself out as this heavenly light, this other kind of light, this not worldly light. And this is a huge part of what's going on in this whole debate because Jesus is trying to help them figure out how to distinguish between real light and artificial light. Truth versus lie. And so... He brings us into this great debate of how do we tell the difference between lights, because there's all sorts of lights. You know, every, every, every ideology, every philosophy, every, every religion, every worldview has some light to it, otherwise people wouldn't be attracted to it. The question is, what is the one true light? Or are they all just the same, all artificial lights? Is there anything true? Is there anything heavenly? How do we know? Okay? So he's bringing us into this debate, and part of the way it's being brought in into the debate is by the context of where it's happening. Remember what we said two weeks ago. This is at the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is this huge pilgrimage festival where uh, Israelites would come from all over the kingdom of Israel, and they would come to Jerusalem, and they'd, they'd build their own tents or tabernacles to remember their time in the wilderness, and they'd celebrate, and they'd dance about how God met them in the wilderness and how he provides for them every year. It's like a harvest festival, and they would do all these symbolic things 
uh, anticipating God, uh, remembering what God has done and also anticipating that he'll come again. And so we talked about one of those things was taking water from the pool of Siloam and walking it up to the temple and putting water over the altar. And Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of that. You don't need to do that anymore. The true water is here. In the same way, Jesus is doing that with light. Because another part of this festival is at night, they light these big four torches in the temple courts. Or sorry, big, um, what would you call them back then? But basically bonfires uh, uh, on top of these pillars in the temple courts that would light up the temple courts. So it would be dark at night, but the light was with them. And then the, the most sort of revered and holy men of uh, Israel would have torches and they would dance around and lead the people in singing and dancing and celebration, all celebrating the light, that God is the light. And so you picture that this maybe just happened just like last night, and then the next day Jesus says, actually guys, I am the light. You don't need to wait for him anymore. You don't need to celebrate. It wasn't just something that happened in the past. The light is with you again, and I am he. Oh. He's saying, what you celebrate as a memory of the light, or artificial lights, I am now the true light that walks among you. Turn and worship me. See it? This bold, big statements being made. Which brings me to the second movement, which is, and the thing that, that the Pharisees charged Jesus of is, prove it! Who are your witnesses? You claim to be the fulfillment of the Feast of the Tabernacles. You claim to be the Old Testament light. You claim to have been in the cloud in in the wilderness. You claim to have been in the bush. You claim to be there at creation. You claim all these things, and the Pharisees say, prove it. How will Jesus prove it? And Jesus interestingly says, I testify about myself. (laughs) That's my proof. So you understand why the Pharisees are like, that's all you got? Right? That's what Jesus says. Look at verse 13. The Pharisee said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Then Jesus will go on to say, Okay, yes, I am one of my witnesses, myself, because really, honestly, if I am who I say I am, then who else could be a higher proof than myself? Nobody else was there at the beginning, just me and the Father. And the Spirit. <laughs> so then he brings in the only other viable witness, which is the Father, who was there at the beginning, and in the bush, <laughs> and in the pillar, right? And they say, who's your dad? <laughs> Prove it. I don't see your father here. And he says, you don't know my father. If you knew my father, you'd know me, you'd recognize me. Remember the sermon, like father, like son. He's been saying this. That the way to know that I am from the Father is that I so resemble the Father that you came to know through the wilderness wandering, through the prophets. I, I am He. I am the Father's Son. So He calls two witnesses. It's Himself and the Father. And I will say, I think there's a Trinitarian witness that comes because the story, we'll get to it in two weeks, the story that comes after this long exchange, so chapter 9, is that Jesus heals a man born blind. To do what? To prove it. For the Spirit has the power to heal. And the Spirit confirms that Jesus is the Son of God. So we got Jesus and the Father and the Spirit by the healing of the blind man. The three witnesses required by Jewish law. 
And Jesus calls all and says, that's my proof. Now, Pharisees, like many of, of the people in our world today, maybe you're even in this boat, say that feels like circular argument. And Jesus realizes that. He knows that. Because he, he can't like, there's no like video evidence from when he was there <laughs> creating life out of darkness. So he knows this is where faith is required. But not just faith. Now I will say ironically, before I come to this other way of testing artificial light versus real life, ironically, from that day on, where they say prove it, and he says, well, I testify about myself. And then he says, well, the Father testifies about me. And then he says, well, I'll show you the Spirit will heal a man born blind. From that day on, and every day since, Jesus has added to his witness list. Every day from that day on, more people have believed and testified that Jesus is the light. Day in, day out. Week in, week out. Year in, year out. Decade in, decade out. Century in, century out. Millennia in, millennia out. More and more people have come to raise their hand and say, I testify that he is the light that brings life and the presence of God into my world. And I worship him. In 1910, the, world, or the Pew Research uh, Center estimated or did their statistical work or whatever that 600 million people in the world were Christians, claimed to be Christians or practiced Christianity, which is at one level or another, not each to the same degree, confessed that Jesus is who he said he was, testified. In 2010, 100 years later, Day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out, decade in, decade out, for 10 decades, 100 years later, 2.2 billion people testify Jesus is the light. So Jesus knows that there's nothing he can say in that moment to prove without a shadow of a doubt that he is who he said he is. So day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out, decade in, decade out, century in, century out. People have been raising their hand. I testify too. And I stand here as a witness. I testify. Jesus is the light. Not artificial light, but true light. Okay. But it's not just about who's got the most people saying. Is there any other way that you could find out that Jesus is the true light? Who's telling the truth here? Well, it is important that Jesus says this of himself. You'll hear it claimed that Jesus never called himself God or Jesus never claimed these things. That can't be true and John be true. Either John made up all this stuff that Jesus said, I am the light, because he's clearly saying I am God or not. So when you hear that argument, just say, well, so you, you don't trust anything John said. Okay, and you don't trust anything Paul said. Okay, and you don't trust anything Peter said. Okay, and you don't trust anything Luke said. Okay, and you don't, which is to say I trust my own interpretation of the light, and he's not the light. Because I do think it's very clear in Scripture, and particularly here in John, that Jesus said this of himself, not just that John said this of Jesus. So this isn't some later addition to the Jesus story that, oh, we need people to think that, that he's God. Jesus was saying it over and over again. It's very clear when you understand the context of when he says, I am the light, and when he says, I am. 
He's being very clear. It might not seem clear to us because we're not first century Israelites, but to them they knew, which is why they picked rocks and wanted to stone him. It's why they hung him from a cross for the crime of blasphemy, which is lying about God because he was saying he was God. So Jesus claims this of himself, and then he says, and here's how you might know that I am true. He says, when you look at me, you will see the Father, which is to say, I and the Father are one, and the Father of lights shines his light through me. And so we come to this great sort of stage of testing the lights. Okay, so you bring up your science experiment and you turn your light on. And I'll bring up my science experiment and I'll turn my light on. And we'll see which one seems true. That's basically what the life ministry of Jesus is. Letting you see the light and and asking which one's artificial and which one's true. So the Pharisees had an artificial light that came from God, the Father of lights, through the law... And, and the question is, did it create life in the way that Jesus created life? Just look at it. Test it out. And so I was thinking about it. It's like store-bought peaches versus going to the farmer's market. And you're like, ah, I've been lied to. <laughs> That's not a peach. That's something else, you know? Right? It's like in middle school when, when I said, man, I am so in love with this girl, Lindsay Gardner. I was so in love And then I met Allie and fell in love with Allie and lived life with Allie. And I said, that wasn't love. Somebody lied to me. I was still heartbroken. But this is love, right? Like middle school love and real love are not the same thing. Spoiler alert. I know we don't have a lot of middle schoolers, but some of us might be stuck in this definition of love that feels like middle school. That's not love. Love is totally different. And once you experience the real thing, then you know the other thing's artificial. Or or just 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 a dim trying its best to model itself after the real thing. Okay? So the best way to figure out something is not the real thing is to experience the real thing. And and Jesus knows that. He's like, there's no witnesses I can draw. There's no Pharisee that's living now that can testify about me that's actually going to really move the needle. Because the only people that can tell you that I am the true light is the Father who is the true light and the Spirit who is the true light because I am the Son who is the true light. So, listen, you've got to just experience it. Live it out. See, am I bringing life? And then he, of course, goes and heals a blind man. Born blind to make it so clear that this blind guy didn't just have something in his eye, but he had never seen his whole life. And Jesus says, I am the light that brings life and opens the eyes of those born blind. So here's some evidence. Here's some experience of me. Does this, feel, does this yoke feel like the yoke of the law that the Pharisees are putting on you that wants to stone you for making one sexual misstep? Or does this feel like life? The light that doesn't condemn, though it doesn't call, it calls sin, sin, but then provides a way to life even through sin. What seems more real? Jesus says, I'm here. Experience me, and you'll see. And he does that by saying, as we said with the, you know, the Feast of the Tabernacles, I'm better than that, those guys dancing around with torches. I'm this light that gives eternal light. Because those torches are going to go out at some point. This torch burns bright forever. 
And he says to them, who do you say I am? And he says to us today, who do you say I am? He says, I say of myself, I am he. Which brings me to my last little movement. The I am statements in this passage are truly profound. This is the second of seven I am statements that Jesus will make. The first one was when he said, you remember when he said, I am the bread of life. Now he says, I am the light of the world. And then we'll have five more to come. But not only does he say, I am the light of the world, he also, at three other times, says, I am. This is so important because Moses, when first speaking to God in the burning bush, asked God, when I go to the people in slavery in Egypt, what, when they ask me, what should we call you? What's your name, God? From the bush, God says, say, I am that I am, which in the Hebrew transliterates to Yahweh. So God said to call him, I am. And so look at this with me. I am the light of the world, verse 12. Verse 24, look what he says. Verse 24, he says, Therefore I told you that you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. That I am. Look at verse 28. He's being very intentional, saying it as many times as he can so nobody misses it. They did, uh, so verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, and of course they didn't know yet, how Jesus would die, but Jesus did, that he would be executed on a cross, which is lifted up for all to see. It's the great paradox of the cross is that Jesus, in them trying to tear him down, is actually lifted up by the Roman execution vehicle. He says, when I'm lifted up, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Oh. I mean, you just imagine them when that actually happened, if some of them remembered he said that. Do you remember when he said that? Do you remember when he predicted that he'd be lifted up? And then, of course, he rises from the dead because the Father was with him. Then, verse 58. How, how can you? You're, you're not even 50 years old yet. I, I love that. We'll come back to that. But, like, Jesus was in his 30s, <laughs> but that shows kind of what a hard life he lived. You're not even 50 yet, Right? So it's like, if you're guessing somebody's age, you know, why didn't they say, you're not even 40 yet? Because he probably looked, I mean, he had been through it. He's not this sort of picture of Jesus just beaming with, you know, perfect skin, perfect hair. I mean, he, he, there was no place for the Son of Man to lay his head, the Scripture tells us. He lived a hard life serving his God and his Father. And they say, you're not even 50. And he says, well, actually, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was even born, I am. And they want to kill him. <sighs> if anybody's a sports fan, you might have had something come to your mind. Uh, I literally just saw it yesterday, Colorado Buffaloes playing UC, uh, USC Trojans, and they're starting to make hoodies, and on one guy's hoodie he's wearing it, this is Deion Sanders' son, it says, I am he or I am him. It's almost become this, in the last two years, this ubiquitous sort of sports term that when you're an athlete and, you, and you're sort of on a roll, you can go look up the memes. It's all these famous athletes saying, I am him. I thought, that's so ironic. 
when I read this text. Again, the world is enchanted <laughs> with the words of Jesus, the gospel of Christ. It's everywhere. And the question is, is LeBron, I am him, or is Jesus? He was the first to say it. <laughs> I am he. He says again and again. I'm like no other man that's ever lived or ever will live. I am the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. I am he, the one you've been waiting for, the one that can save you, the one that has the power to heal and to raise from the dead. I am he, he says. And he stands up in a new way, in a new way that he didn't up to chapter 8, in a new way, and he makes it very clear. I am he. He stands before his opponents and he beats his chest. I am he. Believe in me. I want to save you. He says, I am he, the word at the beginning, one with God most high. I am he, speaking life into all creation. Let there be light. I am he, calling out to Moses to liberate the people of God from slavery. I am he, in the burning bush. I am he, illuminating the mind of the psalmists and the prophets and the poets of Israel to predict the coming of the light. I am he. I am he, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who must be lifted up for our salvation, pierced for our rebellion, crushed because of our inequity, and punished for our peace. I am he, the firstborn of the new creation, who burst forth from the ashes of death and from the grave to bring new light and life into a dying world for all who call upon my name. I am he. What say you? For those of you in my cohort, you know, I have a new fence. <laughs> had to build a new fence. Had to stain the fence. And the fence is the first thing people see when they come to our house. So I don't want to get this wrong, which stain to pick in the store. And so me and Allie are sitting in the store, and we've got these little tiny little samples. They're so small of what this color stain will look like. And it's in this artificial store lighting. And I'm like, I can't be sure. There's so many choices. What do I do? Which stain do I put on the fence of my house? And so I said, I told Allie, distract the guy. I'm going to take these samples out of the little sleeve, and I'm going to walk them outside. And so I walked them outside, and we looked at them in the light of the, of the real sun. We said, this is what it'll kind of look like. But they're still small, and it was so hard to pick. And so I said, I think it's this one, but we've got a couple samples. And so we took those samples, and we put it on a tiny piece of the fence because it's risky. And so we painted a little on the tiny piece of the fence, and, and we thought nobody would be able to see it in a couple different kinds, and you can still see it if you come to our house. And I was like, yikes, that was bad. And we picked the one that looks best, not, not just in the artificial light of the store, not just as a tiny sample, but we got to see what it looks like on our wood. And so we put it, and we think, I think it's that one. But it's still super risky to start painting the whole fence so what do you do when you got the whole fence painted and you look at it and you're like, that red wood stain is really red? But at some point, i gotta, I got to pick. i got to choose. I've got to answer the question, what's my fence going to be? You can't really know what the perfect color 
for your fence will be or your life will be until you paint the whole fence. Until you allow the person and the work of Jesus Christ to saturate your whole life, to soak in to the wood of your life and then see what that life looks like and to see what it looks like in the real world and to see what, what kind of life it radiates, you won't know if it's true. I got to tell you what, if you come to my house, we picked the right stain color. It looks fantastic. It is the most beautiful stain color, especially when it's sunny out. And I'll say the same thing of Jesus Christ. The more I've let it saturate every part of my fence, of my life, the more I see the beauty of Christ reveal itself as the true, the good, and the beautiful. But I couldn't tell that if I just painted one tiny little part of my life with it. I had to take the risk to paint the whole thing. And now I see Jesus is he. Let's pray.